Welcome or welcome back to the Amanda Perry podcast with me, Amanda Perry. Thank you so much for joining this week. Well, it's been another tough week out there and there's no denying that things are particularly difficult for, I guess, any online business, but particularly product businesses, D2C brands. So if you are feeling it at the moment, please, please know that you're not alone. Lots of people are really feeling the pinch and I think it's really interesting with founder-led brands, particularly when it's it's our own business, and we're feeling it both in the pocket, you know, at the supermarket, petrol station, when the electricity bills come in, and also on a business level. So I guess this is just a reminder to be kind, remember that everyone's going through it, and also know that you are not alone. This week, I have really been digging deep and thinking how I can help people. I know that uh, agency fees aren't accessible to everyone. Um, We have launched Grow Plus, which is our done with you service, which is slightly more affordable, but I I know it's still not suitable for everyone. Um, And we were looking at, for anyone that used to be in the Ecom Growth Hub, which was our old uh, training platform, we've been looking at ways that we can bring something similar like that back. But honestly, I just feel like stuff's just changing so quickly. Everything that we came up with... Um, as soon as I kind of decided on what the format was, it just felt like, I don't know, like it wasn't really relevant or wasn't going to be the thing that would be helpful to people. So I've decided to throw it back to 2018 and I've opened up a free Facebook group (laughs) and it really was on a whim. So founder to founder is the brand that we developed to launch the new training platform under, um and i just don't feel like that's right right now so we've we've kept the brand we're using the brand because i love it i just think it really describes how i feel when i'm having conversations with clients or with people that i'm working with where you know there's that mutual understanding of what it's like to run a business and what the issues are um so we've kept the brand founder to founder there is a free group on facebook we'll link it in the show notes if anyone wants to come and join us you are more than welcome not quite sure what the format is just yet there's um no real plan it was just a bit of a whim yesterday thinking how can I really, really support people right now? So I'm going to pop some of the team in there and we'll be there to help as much as we can um, through navigating how we, what's the saying, we can't change the waves, but we can adjust our sales. And I think now we're in this real sale adjusting period. So we are there to help. So come and join the group. We're also um, doing a founder to founder newsletter, which is going to be a really uh, useful roundup of all the small business news from the week. So we'll be sending that out on a Friday. Um, So I will also pop the link in the show notes for you to sign up to that. So hopefully that will be some kind of support in these choppy waters that we're we're going through at the moment i think you know i would say we are all feeling it and it's it's impacting everyone you know it's impacting every level of business and service provider and the ripples are far reaching i would say and i know not everyone wants to hear this but that when 
challenges come along, there is always an opportunity. And I think a lot of the brands that I'm speaking to are kind of almost feeling a bit of a sense of relief that they're coming up against these challenges and maybe things haven't felt right for a while. And this is a time when we really, really need to knuckle down, go back to basics, look at the numbers. For me, it's just about cutting your cloth accordingly. So a lot of people had this really inflated growth through 2020 and 2021 and have now come out with much bigger overheads, um, teams potentially, maybe commitments in terms of rent and studios and that kind of thing. So there's some tough decisions to be made, but ultimately business is business and you need to protect the hygiene of the business, which means really focusing on those foundations. So as difficult as it is, I think we need to find the opportunities. If you want to do that together, come and join the group. This is the kind of thing we'll be discussing in there. So hopefully it'll be of real value to people. Today, I am delighted to welcome Ian McRae onto the show Ian has written an incredible book called Dark Social, which I mentioned in the show, but when his um, publishers sent me a copy, I thought, oh, that's a nice bit of... I mean, it's called Dark Social. I knew it wasn't going to be in a blighton, but I just kind of thought it would be a bit about social media and maybe the impact of, you know, a few references to Trump and that kind of thing. But actually, it's so much more than that. It's a really, really fascinating deep dive into how we behave online and kind of the impact of that uh, on the workplace and on our teams. And it's a really, really deep dive. It's a bit like a, a uni essay or something, but obviously a much longer version. It's really, really fascinating. Highly recommend it. I loved speaking to Ian. I first spoke to him when we did a panel um, for General Assembly, which was brilliant, all about dealing with haters online. Uh, and he had a really fascinating viewpoint, and I knew then I had to get him on the show so you guys could could listen to him. So I will hand over to Ian. Hope you enjoy the show. If you do, please don't forget to subscribe. Leave us a cheeky little review. It really helps for other people to find us, and I would be eternally grateful. I hope you have a really good week. Enjoy the show. Handing over to Ian. Welcome to the show, Ian. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much, Amanda. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Yeah, I am too. So, um, yeah, Ian McRae, psychologist, psycho, the, there's, what's the word I read earlier? I don't even know what this means. Psychometrician. Oh, psychometrician. Yeah, that's so that's developing personality tests. And that's the kind of statistics and math and development behind creating these personality quizzes that give you results based on kind of um, psychological scientific evidence. So it's more than just a BuzzFeed quiz. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm obsessed. Those BuzzFeed quizzes have really like tricked our brains, though, haven't we? I did your quiz earlier. And it's like going through all the questions to get that really, really deep knowledge when we're used to saying, you know, what kind of cheese am I or something like yeah. that. <laughs> and it's interesting, too, because when you're looking at those questions, you can see how people are responding kind of across countries internationally. And though you can see what the real trends are and how people are thinking about themselves, about other people, understanding their work. And once you can really dig into that information, there's a lot you can learn about 
what people really have in common that they don't realize and how you yeah. can explain those traits to themselves and other people. Yeah, I just find it fascinating. I'll add, we'll discuss the quiz actually later on. I'll add it into the okay. show notes as well so people can go and do it. It's so, so interesting. I always find it interesting in those quizzes as well or like psychometric tests where it's like the same question asked a few different ways isn't it and I think oh you're trying to you're trying to catch me out aren't you you're trying to get me to answer it differently yeah there's a few ways of doing that there's a few little tricks and kind of secrets we have in there to make sure people yeah. are responding accurately especially when we're asking about whether or not you're honest and consistent and whether yeah. you're actually answering those same questions in a consistent way Oh, brilliant. I love it. Well, we first met when we did um, a panel for General Assembly, didn't we? God, la mm -hmm. end of last year? Yeah, December, um, I think it was. Yeah, about managing hate online, which was just fascinating. And we could have talked about it forever, I think, couldn't we? Yeah. I just thought it was like a really relevant topic. Um And yeah, so I thought it'd be great to get you back on. I'm going to level with you. I thought I'm going to get Ian on. We can chat about, you know, social and hate and all of this. And your publisher very kindly sent me a copy of your book, which is fascinating. And I thought, oh, like definitely give that a read. Love anything to do with social. And it is not what I expected at all. It's a really okay. um, well-researched, very intelligent, like fascinating book about well, you recap the book because the, there's just so much in there. There's so many parts that I just thought were absolutely fascinating. But you you kind of give a summary of, of the book. Yeah, it's very much a psychology book, but meant to be about social, the kind of dark side of social media, and especially how it's relevant at work and in our yeah. kind of working lives, because I think that's really interesting. And my background is actually, I've done a lot of research initially on leadership and the kind of positive traits of leadership, what makes yeah. a good leader, what makes a successful ethical leader. Um, and in doing that, one of the things that I got really interested in is what's the dark side, because often a lot of material and publication and writing about leadership is this very kind of positive, idealized version of leaders as these kind of great beautiful perfect people who create yeah. you know change the economy change the world do all of this stuff but there's also a lot of interesting stuff about the dark side of leadership mm -hmm. and then not just um, specifically like senior leadership or CEOs or whatever but all of the stuff that happens in organizations that is toxic or destructive or challenging mm -hmm. or difficult to manage um, and then how do we understand that and manage it and mitigate it because I think if we're looking at kind of changes across decades, there's been a lot of positive improvements in the world of work. Um, there's some things that have really improved recently and kind of understanding of remote working and flexible schedules yeah. and managing people as individuals, but there's still a long way we can go in making workplaces better. And there's some examples in the book of really, really horrible experiences people have had in the workplace. Um, some of which are useful for understanding how to identify those signs and bullies or toxic or difficult people beforehand. But there's also a couple of case studies about how to fix it. And yeah. it's, there, it's a lot of work. It's really difficult and it's challenging to fix that, especially when you've got really destructive people in positions of power, but it can be changed. And I think that's really important to emphasize that there is stuff that we can do in our own work and in our organizations to make them better. Yeah, I think it's, um, I just think it's really relevant to now. I love the bit about the, the triangle, the, the toxic work, the toxic dynamic triangle. Yeah, um, the toxic triangle about the yeah, kind of conditions for a destructive yeah. or toxic workplace yeah and I think that that's so easy to fall into isn't it I can think of so mm. many examples I can think of you know examples in my own workplace where you haven't 
There's a lot of times where the particularly the checks and balances bit where you think, you know, it can go a while before you're really pulling those metrics in and holding people accountable. And it's mm -hmm. easy to think that that's like a nice thing and that people aren't being held held accountable for their work and you're giving them an easy ride. But actually, it does have the opposite effect, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's good to have some sort of checks and balances, mm. on, especially in powerful positions or people in influence. It's good to make sure that those teams and those people have some sort of oversight. Like I think flexibility and autonomy is great at work. We should have a general kind of structure, know what we're supposed to accomplish and have a lot of freedom for how to get that done in our own work. But complete and total freedom without oversight in the workplace is not always a good thing. Yeah, um, the other thing I think that's interesting there is I think we tend to have this idea of there's certain a few certain destructive people in workplaces, which can be true, but there's also all sorts of reasons that people who are generally good, generally well-meaning, trying to do the right thing, get pulled into or fall into kind of destructive tendencies or working for people who bring out the worst in them instead of the mm. best in them. So I think that's something we all have to be aware of in our own work is be kind of self-aware and reflect on what we're doing and the motives behind it and what the actual impacts of what we're doing are. Because it's easy to do the wrong thing for the right reasons or thinking you're doing a good thing. So it's just something to be aware of in, in your work. Yeah, God, it's fascinating, isn't it? Again, I feel like mm. we could sit here for five days and yeah, talk about this. Definitely. It's like, what direction do we go in? There's, there's so much there. I think for me, the key is uh, accountability, isn't it? I think you see so mm. many people that are so quick to blame uh, other people in a situation like that and I think accountability on all sides is is really key with anything like that and really recognizing and like learning the lesson yeah definitely and sometimes especially when problems are addressed relatively early on and there yeah. is that accountability and there's trust in the relationships at work people can take on that feedback and say okay I did make a mistake but it's not a huge deal it's not career ending it's not mm. going to get me in a whole bunch of trouble it's just a little problem that we've fixed up and we can move on so yeah. if you can do it in that way sometimes you can head off problems early on but it's tough to do and most people are a bit scared of conflict they're mm. scared of how the feedback's going to be received sometimes justifiably so but figuring out a way to manage those processes and develop trust between people and between teams is really important to making sure that that can happen and that's a big part of the oversight. I completely agree I think trust is such a huge one we saw these kind of situations developing uh, coming out of lockdown so we during lockdown we grew from a team of five to a team of ultimately a team of 40 but wow. 27 by the time we kind of started going back to the office and these people hadn't met before you know we were working really closely mm -hmm. and on zoom calls and you know trying to have the quizzes and the little socials and stuff like that but there really mm -hmm. wasn't that kind of you'll know much more about it than me but I I feel like that fundamental kind of looking in each other's eyes and, and like that chemistry and you know from working yeah. in the office I feel like there was something really fundamental missing and there was a, a real trust issue with coming back into the office coinciding with the the great resignation that was going on I think a lot of workplaces had this almost this this kind of fallout when they went back to the office and you know this um mass mm. resignation all that kind of thing which is is tough for a business isn't it it's really tough 
Yeah, it is. And it's really tough when you're just when your only option is digital and you don't have those in-person mm. options, even if it's for a minority of the time, a small portion of the time where you're doing stuff that really requires developing that trust and that kind of close working relationship with people because, you know, Zoom's great, but there's only a certain amount of information we're getting from it, right? Like yeah. you're not getting all of the body language, you're not getting all of the context. I think one of the things that's missing too is those kind of times of silence or pausing or reflection when you're in the same physical space with someone, mm. because some Sometimes you kind of end up learning a lot about people then or talking with people in a slightly different context or when people mm -hmm. have a bit of time and space to fill the nature and the context of the conversation is a bit different. And it's something that you can't necessarily replicate virtually and you don't really want to sit on an empty Zoom call with someone because it's yeah. just not the same. Um, but there's all sorts of stuff that you just can't get virtually. Um, yeah. I'm a huge advocate for remote work and having all of those options and flexibility but I don't think it's a hundred percent replacement because there's just mm. stuff that you can't replicate perfectly. And I don't even think stuff like a metaverse or anything will ever fix that problem. No, no, that's so true, isn't it? You just don't get those moments of bumping into someone when they're at the coffee machine and asking how their weekend was, or, you know, you just don't have mm. those. Yeah. It's, it, I, I, my, my kind of learning from it was the creativity. I felt like that, that was what we really missed that time to truly brainstorm ideas and have time around the whiteboard and that kind of thing. But yeah, mm. you're really right. It's those, those true getting to know each other moments isn't it that you just can't replicate on a zoom call because as you say it'd be really awkward just sitting there yeah. until someone's got a casual question yeah exactly and that's the thing too because people have maybe four screens in front of them right like they've got yeah. their phone underneath them if they get bored on the meeting they might have another computer next to them so there's other distractions and stuff that yeah people aren't filling with social time they're filling with other stuff which is just kind of a nature of the technology and the way that type of work is. So I think, yeah, you just need to really value that in-person time when you can get it and when it's reasonable to have. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely a balance, isn't there? And I I love that the, the narratives being pushed, I guess this brings us really nicely onto social and, you know, depending on which platform you spend time on, there, there's a very strong narrative about working now and like workplaces and going back to the this sense of you know if you spend time on TikTok there's there's a, a a general narrative that everyone's dreading going back to the workplace and being kind of forced into it LinkedIn yep. would have you believe that every single leader's you know doubled their um the employee salary and gives them all yeah. <laughs> you know work when you want don't work if you don't have to and there's there's a real um uh, there's a real bias towards the main message isn't there so I think mm -hmm. on one platform if there's one or maybe that's just the algorithm and this is all I see but all I tend to see let's take LinkedIn for example is this um, showboating of what we do for our employees and and you know I've, I've given them like work when you want don't work when you want and mm -hmm. I just wonder how much impact you think that actually has on the workplace because personally I, I don't believe half of it's true because there has to be commercial metrics around business doesn't there like everything yeah. we do has to be about creating a better business for the business and for the people involved in it whether that's clients or or the team um and I don't believe that all of these things are a true balance of that I feel that it's very headline PR stuff that that kind of um looks good what what do you think about that 
Yeah, well, it's a really interesting point, especially how certain platforms tend to coalesce around certain narratives. Mm. And that's, I mean, there's some kind of groups that happen within that or that's, you know, subgroups within a platform that tend to kind of be on certain narratives and others on others. But it's funny how that tends to happen, right? Although it's not kind of a um, centrally directed media organization that has the, you know, their stories for the day and agenda or whatever, it's mm. people kind of coalescing around ideas. That really does happen. And I've seen both sides of it. So some platforms are very, very much, I never want to go back into the office. Yeah. Um, and some are all about all of the kind of perks and benefits and stuff. Mm. And, you know, people on LinkedIn are advertising their own company or their recruiters, or they've got their own reasons for doing that. So it's interesting to see the motivations behind that um, but I think it's also really necessary to remember that although there's, the, there's these kind of dominant narratives people are completely different and people have yeah. you know different careers and different goals and want different things and the people who are really kind of consistently pushing these narratives are the minority of people so there's probably a mm. very large segment of people who are somewhere in the in between or who aren't describing their kind of wants, needs, career goals online, but are just trying to figure out where to manage the situation within their own careers and lives. So yeah. it's funny to see the dominant narratives versus what's happening individually. And I think for anyone managing a team, just asking your employees what they want yeah. is so important because they might not necessarily want the same thing as what people are talking about on LinkedIn. And they might, some people will, but mm. there's a lot of different opinions and attitudes that people have that don't necessarily fit neatly into those. But it's yeah. really hard to get that from the headline thing either in general media kind of traditional media or social media yeah and I think that there's also a tendency for the narrative to become how everyone's thinking from from an employee's point of view or from anyone's point of view so I approach mm -hmm. the situation of oh god like everyone hates no one wants a nine-to-five now everyone wants this freedom. yeah <laughs> everyone, everyone's giving their team like donuts as they walk through the door and you know we, <laughs> we give donuts as well. um yeah. but it's really easy to fall into that narrative and I I've seen a lot of um people in jobs there's there's been a lot of kind of job hopping as we used to call it mm -hmm. and this real sense of unrest and I, I really feel that this narrative is playing a huge part in that people really believe that you know the grass is greener we all know the grass isn't greener but um yeah I I think it's it's interesting to think whether we we create the narrative or the narrative creates us you know yeah, it's, it's yeah. a really interesting dynamic isn't it and it's hard to separate that too, because I think for a lot of us, and I do, I'm sure I do this a lot too, is you see what the kind of dominant narrative is and then you go, mm -hmm. okay, how do I fit within this? Or what's my take on this? Or what's the, like, how does this fit into you know, my research or my work? Or So we tend to sometimes reinforce it ourselves too. And then obviously through the platforms, if we're clicking on those things, then we're gonna see 10 times more of them. So yeah. if we start to interact with a certain type of post or a certain type of message, then we're gonna get 10 times more of that because the algorithm yeah. automatically thinks that's what you wanna see. So you're kind of, creating and reinforcing your own beliefs or kind of opinions or what you see on the platform just by interacting with them. And that's how they work. So yeah. it's hard to know too, how much of that, how much we're kind of putting ourselves into that little bubble. Um, Cause I don't know, probably a lot of people who are in marketing, I'm sure you're included, um, have managed different social media accounts yeah. and different social media accounts for like different companies. Mm -hmm. And then, so you end up seeing completely different posts and adverts and the trending topics are even different if you're managing yeah. kind of a tech focused thing versus yeah. uh you know work or hr focused thing completely different topics attitudes yeah. opinions i'm thinking of twitter on that because i've done that <laughs> i've got you know yeah. managing or advising on a certain profile and i'm like wow this is a completely different world just yeah. based on 
the words and what you're interacting with in the topics. It's funny to see that how you can completely be disconnected from something else that you're not yeah. might not even be aware exists. Yeah, it's so true. I, sometimes I see my husband's like I don't know Facebook feed or something, and I think what's that like that is yeah. it's just worlds apart isn't it and I think nowhere's more more that than TikTok because the algorithm is just mm. so accurate that people advising on TikTok accounts when they're saying you know if you want to grow a TikTok account you have to start it from fresh and then mm. you have to go on and like you know, 10 or 20 posts that are bang on your target demographic. Yeah. If you veer off at all, then it's completely going to throw your growth. And it's just, it, it's really, I guess it's the point I made before, but, but in general, like, are we like social is really changing who we are as people, aren't we? I mean, your job must be fascinating in that respect of how it really is, it, yeah it really is changing our behaviors and our our wiring yeah well I've got a question for you actually because when you're looking at that advice about make sure you're really on topic and consistently on message how much do you agree with that because it's very true if you veer off message on a lot of these platforms you'll get less attention for it but how much do you think you should follow the algorithm and one kind of core set of content versus having a bit more variety and saying, okay, I know this post isn't going to get as much attention, but this is something I really want to talk about, or this is a message that I want to talk about, even if I don't get quite as much um, attention or endorsements for it. Yeah, I think that's really, really interesting. So I think that from a content point of view, we mm -hmm. are multifaceted creatures, aren't we? And I yep. think that we're not we're not brands and we're not commodities. And so we should be talking about all, all of the things that interest us. But I guess it comes back to your objective. If you're yeah. someone who has a really, really clear objective and you're very like goal oriented and, you know, let's go back to something like TikTok where if you if your goal is to if your idea of success is to grow an account to 100,000 in 30 days, you can't talk about anything other than that thing that's going to give your audience yeah. value. And it's really interesting you asked that actually, because when we did that panel, there was something you said on the panel about that's really stuck with me about how you took a really conscious decision uh, last year, I think you said, and decided to just keep social for for professional only. Yeah. It wasn't for personal. And that's really stuck with me because I think... I think that there's a real argument for that as we go forward or I see a lot online and I've certainly done it myself where I don't want to share everything anymore I used yeah, to share exactly. everything I'd be on there at weekends like oh look at my coffee and my brunch and this is what I'm doing and this is who I'm with and I just I just don't really want that to be out in the public domain anymore not that mm -hmm. it's not from a I don't want people knowing it's just I think we, we we've really started to value what's um precious to us and kind of personal haven't we yeah I think so and I think it's interesting how you say about that change too because I've definitely done the same and the platforms have fundamentally changed over the yeah. last five even ten yeah. years like it doesn't yeah. it's not that long in terms of most things but for social it's 
fundamentally different. Like the platforms yeah. are different. The content is different. The way their algorithms work is different. And I used to share everything. You know, I got a Facebook account just as I was going into university. And it was that time that you could only get onto Facebook if you had a university email. And that was a very different platform when it was just college and university students yeah. talking to each other. Yeah. And that's how I used it at the time. Now that's not how I want to use it now. And that's not how I want to use it professionally. And it's just, it's not even the same platform. It's no. hard to even see it as a kind of personal evolution. It's just, these are different technological tools that have different yeah. purposes and the data from their, that they're collecting from us is different. The advertisements on it are different, uh, but that's fine. Like, I think what you need to do is just learn what the platforms do, what they're used for, and be really aware of how you want to use them and what you want to get for them. So mm -hmm. if you want to use them personally, that's absolutely fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Just go in knowing kind of who you're connecting with and what your privacy settings are and what you yeah. feel comfortable sharing with people. And I think for people early in their careers too, I would recommend just be really careful because that stuff is on there forever. I know you hear it all the time, but I think at that age, I definitely didn't realize how much some of my kind of beliefs or things about society and politics and all of that stuff could change and evolve over yeah. time so there's nothing wrong with having opinions but they shouldn't always be public or they might not necessarily always be useful to have them be public mm. so and I think some of the conflict comes in there too because you can't have those same types of conversations like we we're talking about before um, online in a few characters or a few words as you can with people and I find stuff is a lot less controversial when you have more time and space to get into issues and talk to people eye to eye face to face mm -hmm. whereas if you're putting them online it's really hard to have that same kind of depth and nuance and discussions so yeah. just understanding the value of different in-person versus different social channels versus what you're trying to talk about and communicate with is really important and it can lead to reducing a lot of conflict if you use them kind of consciously and in a self-aware way yeah and I, I think that that's another oh my god there's so much that I could get into with you but that's another dangerous thing that I see or the the it's again it's different on different platforms so this idea of having to be polarizing to get engagement or having to be polarizing to um, grow your audience or, you know, on LinkedIn, it's very much about disagreeing with people or, you know, even this idea of make sure that you're commenting on 10 key people in your industries um, posts every day, because then you'll get seen. And then it's just this kind of, um, the algorithms dictating our behavior to the point where our behavior actually changes. So people yeah. who are, and I guess this is to your point in the book, isn't it? People who are slightly controversial offline, online, when they realize that it's an attention economy and they, they know mm. that by causing outrage, they're going to, you know, blow up then they become very, very controversial online. And that affects your nervous system and cortisol. And, you know, that there is a physiological impact of that, isn't there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And your behavior, whether it's online or offline, is shaping these kind of long-term patterns. If you're mm. doing something again and again or talking about something again and again, the actual kind of chemicals and the physiology of your brain is changing. So if you're experiencing an emotion constantly consistently if you're stressed and arguing about something constantly your brain is changing its kind of shape and function to fit that to create that model of where that's a normal thing in your life I mean we're talking about 
over years and decades. It's not something that if you're being argumentative all night for a week, it's fundamentally changing your yeah. brain. But if you're doing this stuff, it is changing how you experience social relationships and interact with people and your kind of default setting for interacting with people. Because I bet a lot of people have found that if you get into an argument or you're getting into stuff that's really heated and um, kind of maybe complex, but really controversial, then you're kind of primed to deal with those type of arguments, right? So mm. you're thinking, okay, what's the kind of dark side behind what this person's trying to do? What are their ulterior motives? And do I need to challenge this constantly? Well, you might actually not be making much of a difference by yeah. getting into these kind of op opposition, oppositional conversations that no one's changing side. People are just getting mad at each other and it might not be the right format to do that. Now, the other side of that is some people do get extraordinarily popular or successful by doing that. And some people do it very deliberately. And so for mm. people who do that, I think you probably want to look at what they're doing, why they're doing it, and think really hard and long about whether that's the person you want to become. Mm -hmm. Because some people do it consciously, but I think a lot of people do it unconsciously as well, because we're generally, even if we're not thinking about what gets us the best metrics or the highest engagement, we generally tend to do stuff that we get reinforcement and reward for. Yeah. And likes and endorsements and comments and popularity are all rewards that give us a little hit of kind of dopamine or chemicals in our brain that are saying, good job, you've done a good job, do that again, get more of this. Yeah. And so those algorithms can kind of influence us when we're our most popular po uh, post or you know, whatever it is, is getting attention. People tend to do a bit more of that, even if they're not really consciously doing it. Mm. So it's easy to kind of slide down that slippery slope of, being more controversial or angry or kind of actively destructive online, mm. even without realizing it. And then once you fall into that pattern and people kind of fall into that pattern around you, it's much harder to get out of it once you've been doing it for a long time. So that's why be really conscious about your intention and your process and how you want to do things. And I think sometimes it's worthwhile to just say, well, I know that would get me more attention, but that's just not who I am or it's not who I want to become. So I'm going to use a different route and I'm going to be a bit more slow and careful about getting engagement and connecting with followers and how I do that yeah and I, I think that's the key isn't it I guess yeah what is it inside us that as you're saying that I'm thinking well I know that I could go on I could go on a, a any social media platform and post I don't know something really controversial or a, a, a the one that influencers always talk about is put a picture of a bikini on. It doesn't matter like who you are. It's going to blow <laughs> up either for good or bad, yeah. you know, but there's that thing like there's absolutely, you'll be pleased to know there's no way I'm posting a picture of me in a bikini <laughs> online or, or even going on and being purposely controversial, even though I know it would grow because I don't want the backlash. I don't like, I don't like that that um controversy online I don't like that feeling of conflict so there is something morally inside of us even though but some of us I guess even though we know it might get us to our desired outcome quicker that that stops us from doing that that huge stuff that kind of really uncomfortable stuff whereas some people would just say I don't care it's going to get me to my goals I'm going to do it yeah, and that's a bit of a trap too, because if people end up following you for that, that's what they want to see. Yeah. So if you're trying to do that as a decoy to get people into yeah. other content, it might sort of work sometimes, but that's not going to get repeat customers. That's not going to get people coming back. They'll unfollow you when they see that that's not generally the kind of content that you have. Yeah. So it's not really worthwhile in the long term. And I think if you're thinking strategically about this and thinking what you want to accomplish and really who you want to be and what you're about in the long term, then that kind of short term stuff 
might be initially really powerful in attracting followers or attention, but it's not sustainable in the long term. And if you see sometimes this happen in public figures, trying to keep escalating it and you know being more controversial being more excessive being more extreme about their stuff because even the initial stuff that got the attention is not enough you can't just post yeah. the same photo every day it'll last for a day or two and then people lose interest so you have to keep upping that game and if you're going down in that direction it's just not sustainable it's not positive and it's not useful no and i think we all know um we could all think you know name five people at least who have made it in the sense of they've got to where they wanted to get to and then the kind of mental health impact is just yeah. huge isn't it there's no I can't think of a single influencer or youtuber or um con huge content creator that doesn't talk about the impact on their mental health and I don't even I haven't even got a huge following but even for it's a constant thing isn't it it's constantly or it can become constantly on your mind so there is that real impact isn't there of you know I guess it's be careful what you wish for isn't it yeah, exactly. Be careful what you wish for and be careful how fast it happens too, because yeah. sometimes it takes, it takes a long period of time and kind of experience and development to learn how to manage larger groups of followers, how to manage different platforms, how to manage your own mental health in relation to that, mm. because people aren't really built to manage relationships with that many people, right? Most people no. have three to five close friends, close, close friends. That's it. A lot of people have more contacts and colleagues and stuff, but that scale of social information is really, really difficult, almost impossible for our brain to process. Yeah. So without any experience too, then it's really difficult to know what should happen. And I've, I'm actually working on a new book and I talked to someone who went through a massive kind of cancellation thing, but like not just getting canceled, but like death threats and horrible like threats against his family and all sorts of stuff that is just like, you would really struggle with from, you know, one person, if it was one person sending you mm. those messages, but tons of strangers. And whenever you go online, whenever you go on a platform, like there's just no really good or effective way to handle that. Even if you've got a team around you, even if you've got psychological supports, it's so difficult to deal with. But, you know, most people will experience that online, even if it's just from one or two yeah. people. And even then, like, it's really, really stressful. And our brains are really not good at handling that type of information, especially from strangers, especially from anonymous people online, especially when we're not sure who it is or what their motivations for. Like conflict is difficult enough in your personal life yeah. when it's you know a family or a partner where you know what's going wrong, you know the relationship, you know the person, you've got a lot of information, but that kind of social threat or social challenge and conflict without without context, without explanation, without any any resolution mechanism, right? Yeah. It's not like you can sit down and have a chat or there's, you know, a manager who can come in and kind of try and explain or manage the situation. It's it's really difficult. So developing the kind of psychological tools or teams around you to understand how to manage everything that comes with having mm. a large following online is it takes a while. Yeah, and we're just not there yet. Oh, even though social's yeah. been around for, you know, what, 10, 15 years, largely, we're, we're just not there yet to manage that. It's interesting that you say about cancel culture, that's what I was, I was going to come on to next, so about him getting cancelled. And it's actually interesting that you say he, because I, I was having a conversation the other day about cancel culture and talking about, very generally, the, the people that I think of when I think about council culture are largely women. And I mm. think that there's there's something in that about our acceptance of men being kind of controversial and, and brash and loud and getting called out on things versus 
how we respond respond to women but in general mm. I think cancel culture is um actually on reflection maybe not as bad as it used to be maybe a bit more maybe we have come up with some tools around that but I have no idea how people cope with that or cope with the that onslaught that you describe of you mm -hmm. know even I, I hate any kind of conflict even if someone disagrees not disagrees but you know if I see anything negative I really 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 hate that so yeah. I don't know how anyone copes with that onslaught let alone um manipulates it or kind of welcomes yeah. it or attracts it so what yeah what what's your take on can cancel culture and what do you see when um people do have that onslaught I know you said about the the guy in the book but how how do people respond to that yeah I think I mean there's no good way to respond to it there's no it, it was interesting talking about talking with someone who's experienced it because he also said that essentially there was nothing you can do to kind of rebut certain points because you know someone has a complaint or someone has a criticism and then other people have 50 more and then if you respond to something then a yeah. hundred other people jump on what you said and pull that apart and there's no pleasing anyone so there's no real way to stop it by kind of actively engaging with it. And I think this is true a lot of, of a lot of toxic behavior online that you can't really fight it. You have to disengage from it because participating in it just amplifies it. Even if you're trying to argue a point or disprove someone who you think is wrong, you're just promoting it if you're responding to it. So you have mm. to find a way to disengage, which is really hard. And then the other thing about it is if you engage with it, you're just fueling it, right? You're creating more content that is specifically related to that dispute or sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, specifically related to that dispute or whatever's going on. So it's, you have to disengage with it. You can't really shut it down in that way, which is something none of us are really prepared for either, right? Because if there's a problem, you want to fix it. If someone yeah. has a problem with you, you want to talk it out or resolve it in some way or yeah. figure out a solution to it. There's no kind of resolution mechanism, but it's interesting that you say that it's, um, you think it's kind of changing or going away a bit, because I think there is some fatigue. So I mm. think initially some of the things that cancel culture emerged from was some kind of people who were horrifically bad, like Harvey yeah. Weinstein's a good example of yeah. that, of someone who we should, a lot of people said rightly so, okay, this is someone who should not be in a position of power, who should yeah. not be getting work, who should not be having all the financial resources to do all of the stuff that he's been doing for decades um so there's kind of some of that where it came from that position of like okay well this person is in a position of power and um, let's all yeah. come together to make sure that they shouldn't be because the yeah. institutions that would traditionally deal with that have failed don't exist don't care whatever mm -hmm. but it's strange how it kind of converted into something that can apply to anyone right mm. someone who's managing a twitter account we can become the kind of target of one of those social media mobs or it can be someone who's you know not in a position of power or authority or it's not necessarily there's a lot of good to be accomplished by getting someone out of that position but there's that kind of power that people have discovered on social media that mobs yeah. can have but I'd be interested to know I don't think there's much research on this yet about what are the characteristics of people who participate in that as well yeah because I've been interested yeah because it's not like it's a mob of constructive kind of delicate criticism because no. I think even that would be difficult to deal with if a lot of people didn't really like what you're saying but um you know it was kind of constructive helpful useful 
then even that is challenging, but manageable to deal with. But it's mm. vicious, violent. The threats often extend to people's family or friends yeah, or partners, yeah. which is just like that's cyberbullying. That's not constructive criticism. That's not yeah. reason debate online. It's just um, that kind of next level of it. So hopefully it's waning a bit, especially in relation to just kind of general people. But um, yeah, it's tough. I think a lot of people are worried about saying the wrong thing online. And I think that's one of the reasons that people tend to stick to the kind of dominant narratives too, because you're yeah. kind of safe as long yeah. as you're in that lane, you're saying the same yeah. thing as everyone else. And if you stray out of that, you know that there's going to be people who criticize it, which on one level is fine, but if it's going to extremes is probably terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. I think we saw that a lot during, um, the kind of June 2020, the, the BLM movement. And mm -hmm. I remember seeing things escalate so quickly and just having this real um, moment of thinking, how, how are we going to educate ourselves or kind of open this conversation up if we can't ask the questions? And of course, there mm -hmm. were some people asking questions that shouldn't be asked or expecting, you know, people of colour to... to put in the labor to answer their questions when they could google it or or pay to you know buy a book or educate themselves yeah. but i do think that, that that's a really extreme example i do think there's a real fear of um asking these questions that will open the important conversations because mm -hmm. you don't want i guess it's like any forum isn't it even we've got this program running at the moment i just had a call with them this morning and I said, you know, ask these questions in the group. And they're like, oh, I don't want to look silly. So mm. it's it's a human thing, isn't it? I don't want to look silly, be called out for asking something or saying something that is out of the, the dominant narrative. Um, yeah. I loved Oprah, when Oprah Winfrey was talking to Adele, I don't know if you saw that interview and she called it gotcha culture. Oh, she yeah. said, it's, it's not cancel culture. It's like, I got you. I found that tweet or I found that thing that you said 15 years ago when yeah. you were a completely different person. And I feel like that's where it's gone to. It's gone to, you know, someone on Love Island might have said something really stupid when they were a kid and first on Twitter and trying to get attention. And that's mm -hmm. going to be pulled up and they'll be cancelled. And, you know, there is this, um, yeah, I feel like it needs to go full circle, doesn't it? Yeah, and these things do, the pendulum kind of swings back and forth and they do go full circle, but they never really disappear entirely. But I think the other thing to remember about this too, especially if there's someone digging through 15 years of your social media yeah. history to find something, that kind of behavior is not necessarily about you, it's about them. And I've said this before, right? It's like, if we're looking at the psychological characteristics of people who are very aggressive, mean-spirited, trying to be destructive deliberately online, mm. then that's a whole nother category, right? So it's something that you need to kind of realize that sometimes when people are criticizing you sometimes they're just trying to push their own product right so mm. they're trying to be the opposition to you because they're defining themselves against you because they haven't really found a good way to define themselves individually yet mm. so again that's not about you it's not that you're a bad person it's the other person is kind of imagining you as a character online mm. um, and defining themselves in opposition to that or in relation to that or sometimes it's people again who have other motives other reasons for doing that or being really aggressive destructive and toxic online yeah. there might be that kind of stuff behind it so I think it's tough to do and disengage from every kind of relationship online even if it's someone that's a stranger but being able to just kind of step back from it take a pause and say okay 
that's not necessarily about me. It's not necessarily about what I'm doing. It's just, you know, you have to step away from it. Mm. It's a way to manage that and understand yourself as separate from some of it, especially if you have a larger profile or you're getting a lot of kind of engagement with a wide range of people, just being able to separate it. It's tough to do. I mean, I don't know it's if it's really possible tough, to it? completely do, but yeah. yeah. I think it's tough when it's... Um like not engaging with it's really tough when you know it's not true I saw something a couple of weeks ago that is is completely not true that someone had um put on a platform about about uh, my company actually and it was Mm. it's completely not true um and I really went through that battle of do I respond do I not respond do I um contact them directly you know personally and it's a it's a really difficult thing to do because when you know that there's that it's purposely very very untrue yeah you could it's it's yeah how much do you want to stoke the fire and how much do you just want to keep your energy calm and and carry on doing the, the good work that you are it's really it's a difficult one isn't it Yeah. And then that's where sometimes the personal and professional boundaries are difficult to separate too, because you have to say, okay, as the business, I, maybe I do need to respond to this. Maybe Mm. I need to post one thing um, that's a specific, if it's kind of a factual thing that can be disproved Mm. and it is important to do for the business. If it's Mm. on public forum that other people are seeing, maybe you do need to, but you can't get sucked into it being a constant debate or a back and forth. Cause again, that's just making whatever that criticism is a lot bigger and giving it more credence than it necessarily deserves. But yeah, it's tough to know it's really tough it's really tough I want to touch on something um I don't know if you are you you are you on Instagram are you an Instagram user you're a Twitter and a LinkedIn uh yeah Twitter LinkedIn Discord YouTube um but Instagram not anymore I had a personal one for a while um I actually got rid of it because again I thought it was private but it wasn't people oh, kept gosh. tagging me in professional settings that I had so I just I just got rid of it yeah so it wasn't okay. it wasn't working for what I wanted so yeah, yeah that's my sure, Instagram story yeah. Instagram's gone through a real um change over the last uh I would say I would say six months really but fundamentally okay. over the last couple of months reach and engagement is through the floor people are really uh, frustrated with it there's this real sense in the small business community that I work in that you used to be able to go on there and post a post a picture or post a story and you would get some sales from it even if you weren't using paid media or anything yeah so it it really I mean it grew a lot it was responsible for growing a lot of businesses you know mm-hmm. people have a lot to owe to, that they owe to it but something really interesting is happening and I just I wondered if you knew the the third place theory you know this idea of our third place that isn't like our I've got it written to it was Ray Oldenburg that said about it and I heard about it years ago in relation to the gym weirdly where people would say the gym was their third place it's not a home and it's not work but it's like their it's it has the same kind of sense for them it's somewhere they feel safe and they feel um yeah protected and included and I was thinking about this a while ago and then weirdly saw a TikTok on it last night. And it's this idea that social or our social platform has become our third place. So Mm -hmm. when there's fundamental changes to the platform and when we lose reach or lose engagement or aren't getting the, the positive reinforcement we used to, it's really disorienting. Yeah. 
I just wonder what you think about that. I mean, it's probably a much bigger conversation than just a, a kind of quick answer, but I just find that really fascinating that we associate ourselves so much with this virtual thing that used to be a physical space, but mm -hmm. we feel really secure and comfortable in this space. We know our friends, we know who we're talking to, we know how it works. And then one thing shifts within it and it kind of changes our whole environment, our business, our, our thoughts around it. I just wonder what you what you thought about that or if it's something you've encountered yourself. Yeah, it's a really interesting point because these social media platforms seem to have a kind of life cycle where yeah. initially they're really good and they really reward the early adopters and all of the perks are kind of greater the earlier you are in and then they go through this arc of getting more popular more popular more engagement and then they just get too saturated with adverts and then there's no engagement yeah. if you're not paying i think facebook yeah. was a good example of that yeah. too because there's just no organic engagement really with no. it and it sounds like instagram is kind of like that now too but then it's interesting that people identify so much with one platform and yeah. have that kind of as their space and i would say both personally and professionally make sure if you built these communities or you know work communities work kind of personal communities interest communities that you make sure you develop that community outside of one single mm -hmm. platform because mm -hmm. the platforms can change really suddenly sometimes or sometimes mm -hmm. they go through waves of banning certain type of content or stuff that used to be acceptable is now kind of borderline or deprioritized mm -hmm. or shadow banned or whatever they do but I think it's really really important if you have those communities those spaces those places to make sure they're interconnected on different platforms mm -hmm. and you have different ways of connecting with people with your audience so you know from a business perspective that might be having your own business space so people can always go to and you're getting people with the connections between those platforms and whatever the you know business is but same with communities right you want to make yeah. sure that your community is really resilient it's not dependent on one specific thing on one specific platform and one company because yeah. that company's priorities can change someone can buy the company or someone new can come in and say we don't want any of this stuff on this platform anymore yeah. and all of a sudden your community's gone and if those connections only exist on one platform within one company's network then it's hard to save that community right yeah. i mean it happens and people are uh, kind of valiant efforts to rescue these things but it's good we don't always think about that when things are good and the community is growing yeah. and you've got these great connections all of a sudden it seems like it's gone instantly but mm. if you're building those communities you really want to make sure that they're resilient if they're important because people use that for all sorts of stuff like mental health resources for local community yeah. groups international community groups friendship networks all sorts of stuff so yeah making sure if you're kind of moderator or kind of owning those communities or managing those communities you're really making sure that they're kind of resilient and the purpose that they have is independent of the platform. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just find it so fascinating that these virtual spaces are, are kind of in, in our minds and in our sense of security and replicating these, yeah. what would traditionally be a physical space. It's fascinating, isn't it? I want to be respectful of your time, but honestly, I could talk, every time you say something, I'm like, oh my God, I've got 10 questions about that. Where do I go? <laughs> this, I could talk about this stuff all day. I just find it endlessly fascinating. And this is definitely a completely different podcast, but then the evolution into like web three and how, you know, and the metaverse yeah. and how we do evolve into there. So I find it fascinating, but I always end with these two questions, Ian. And the first one is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given or you've ever seen that you kind of keep going back to? 
this is a piece of advice that has got me into trouble a couple of times, but it's say yes to everything professionally. Brilliant. <laughs> just join in, do stuff, try stuff. If you fail, it doesn't really matter. Just do it, learn from it, carry on with it. You'll make mistakes and there's sometimes stresses associated with that, but it's very good <laughs> advice that I definitely do try and follow as much as I can. I love that you um, were very careful to say professionally. Yes, definitely <laughs> professionally. Not personally, just professionally. <laughs> and the last one is, what advice would you give to anyone listening, um, I guess, in relation to enjoying their time online and, and having a kind of healthy relationship with their online persona? Um, I would definitely say make sure you're doing it with intention and you're reflecting on what you see and what you're consuming because there's a lot of information and a lot of stuff and if you're seeing stuff especially from particular groups or communities that make you feel really bad or bad about yourself or worried or stressed or anxious disconnect from them you don't necessarily need to kind of delete them from your life or make sure your bubble's really small but just reflect on what kind of information you're getting and how it's making you feel and whether or not that's where and how you want to be spending your time because you're going to be given whatever you're looking for online and whatever you yeah. click on so make sure you're in control of your online experience not someone else i love that thank you so much so honestly i could i could carry on this for days but i i genuinely i've got another book out in six months so maybe i can oh, come back brilliant. on we'll talk again brilliant yes <laughs> absolutely so that leads me on to where can people find you and then tell us about the books what's Dark Social is your latest book, isn't it? This one. Yeah, Dark Social is my latest book. So that's all about work, personality, social media, the interaction between all of them. And there's a lot of advice, a lot of kind of expertise about the psychology behind what's going on, yeah. but also really practical advice about how to manage it and understand yourself and other people in the workplace. Um, so I've actually got a second edition of a book coming out in six months, which is Myths of Social Media, which is more of a kind of marketing and psychology guide to everything you need to know about different platforms and managing them and Brilliant. yourself and your business online so well good. I absolutely love dark social so I'm gonna go back and, and find all of the others and look forward to your next one where's the best Thanks. place for people to find you online and to connect with you um twitter or linkedin are both good and I do have a youtube channel where I talk about all of the topics in my book and I've been updating it fairly regularly so Brilliant. just search Ian McRae psychologist any variation of that and I'm sure you'll find me we'll link it all of it in the show notes thank you Perfect. so much I feel like yeah there's so there's there's so much more that we could talk about but hopefully yeah. <laughs> we've got a broad covering of what's kind of going on online at the moment and uh yeah really grateful for your time today thank you so much Ian yeah that was so interesting I really enjoyed it thank you oh thank you Oh, stop recording.